The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Paul Rogers. We talked about the Taliban's advance across Afghanistan and the possibility of an imminent takeover of the capital Kabul. We spoke about why the Taliban have been so successful against the more numerous and better equipped and supported Afghan government forces, what the Taliban's victory might mean for India, Pakistan and China. And finally, we discussed how history will judge Western military intervention in the country. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Hard Road to Renewal by Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall's 1988 writings on the political impact of Margaret Thatcher established him as the most prescient and insightful analyst of contemporary conservatism. His critical approach is elaborated in essays on the formation of the SDP, Inner City Riots, The Falklands War, and the significance of Antonio Gramsci. Out this month in a new edition from Verso Books, The Hard Road to Renewal, Thatcherism and the Crisis of the Left by Stuart Hall is part of their August book club reading. And now to today's interview. Paul Rogers is Emeritus Professor in the Department of Peace Studies at Bradford University. He's Open Democracy's International Security Advisor and has been writing a weekly column on global security since September 2001. His latest book is the revised fourth edition of Losing Control, Global Security in the 21st Century, which is out now from Pluto Press. So we're talking on Thursday the 12th of August, which is perhaps worth mentioning given how fast moving the situation in Afghanistan is. The Taliban have now captured 10 provincial capitals uh, and they control the majority of the countryside. Uh, And today it was reported that the Taliban have now uh, captured the city of of, of Ghazni, just uh, 80 miles southwest of the capital, Kabul. And in response, the Afghan government has replaced the chief of the army for the the third time in, in little over a year. Have you been surprised by the speed of the Taliban's advance that's followed the, the announcement of the withdrawal of US forces, which is due to be completed by the end of this month? I've been rather surprised, but it's varied in a way. If you look back about a month, um, there was a suspicion that the Taliban would make pretty rapid advances, and I certainly held that view. Then there were indications that it might proved to be rather more difficult for them uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the Americans claimed that they actually had trained what they called the special forces units of the Afghan National Army to a pretty high level and equipped them appropriately. That was probably anywhere between 20 and 30,000 troops, maybe more. Most of the rest of the army was very poorly trained, very low morale. But the feeling was that this was, from an American perspective, a capable force. There were also indications that some of the warlords were preparing for resistance to a Taliban rule. And most importantly, uh, some of the smaller confessional groups, such as the Hazara, who were really hugely worried about what the Taliban might do to them, 
and there are two million of them across Afghanistan, they were forming their own militias for self-defense. So the belief was that what might have happened in the following months from a, a month ago through to the present would have been the Taliban were facing such heavy casualties, they might be prepared to negotiate. That clearly has turned out not to be the case. And especially the success of the Taliban in taking control of some of the key areas in northern Afghanistan, which was not frankly their territory. Um, with the very strong Pashtun origins, they were much stronger across the south of Afghanistan, particularly in provinces like Helmand and Kandahar and through to the southeast. Uh, so there was a surprise it was happening. Now, the situation we are in now, as of, as you say, the afternoon of the, uh, of the 12th of August, Thursday, is that Al Jazeera is reporting two interesting developments. One is the United States um, has got together quite a large group of states to send representatives to meet with the Taliban in Doha, bluntly warning them that if they take control, they will be ostracized right across the international community. And very recently, there's a report that the Afghan government is sending somebody to Doha with an offer of a compromised victory. In other words, they would share power with the Taliban if the Taliban were agreeable to a ceasefire. It is just possible, and I stress the just, that that might have some effect and there might at least be a pause while the Taliban consider further. I'm doubtful about that because I think the pace of development by the Taliban has been such that they may well decide to go for broke, so to speak, trying to take virtually everywhere except Kabul and then force some kind of settlement on their terms. The sort of objective estimate, say, two or three months ago, going back further, was it would be a question of whether the Taliban could take control before the onset of the coming winter. And many people thought that was unlikely. That, frankly, is no longer the case. The possibility of some sort of power sharing uh, arrangement that, that you mentioned, do you think at this stage that that would be simply uh, a face saving exercise that it would help the US to avoid uh, a very sort of embarrassing defeat, which could be clearly pinned on on the consequence of, of withdrawing from the country? It may be. Uh, it may also be the case that the Taliban see this simply as the first step of a two-step process. They agree a deal knowing full well that given a few months, they'll take control of the whole country. But in the short term, yes, it would be slightly better for Biden. But I think we have to understand that uh, the United States under Biden is going to leave. We can discuss what they will do later on in a moment, but they are now determined to leave. And it is worth remembering the history of this that essentially in the election of 2008, Obama decided to fight his campaign in relation to the war on terror, to use that term, on the basis that Iraq was the bad war and the United States must get out, which of course it did in the short term, although they went back in later. Whereas Afghanistan was a necessary war uh, because this was a war which related directly to the 9-11 atrocities. Now, McCain, the um, Republican contender, John McCain, um, the late Senator McCain, he was advocating an immediate increase in American forces in Afghanistan from about 100,000 to 130,000. Uh, and the idea was to defeat the Taliban and force them to a deal on American terms. Obama thought through this for the first couple of years of his term in office, certainly the first year or so, and decided to hack, go for a surge, um, similar number of troops, but with the clear understanding within the administration that that surge would be about forcing the, the Taliban to negotiate, 
but not from a position of weakness, but at least bring them to the table. Uh, he did not expect in any way to defeat them, to force them to surrender almost on very poor terms. Um, now, this was the view within the administration. There are pretty firm indications that his vice president, Joe Biden, wasn't at all sure about that even then was beginning to join the group who said the United States should actually get out of Afghanistan. They didn't go as far as a few people back in 2001 who said you should never go into the war. It's a mistake in the first place. But certainly they saw that this was an unwinnable war. And so I think this probably explains why Biden found it quite useful uh, to see Trump say we're getting out of Afghanistan and stayed with it. And I think he decided pretty early on, maybe even before he won, that that would be one war they had to get off, out of, no matter how difficult it proved to be, and how, no matter how much flack the United States would take, and indeed what the impact would be in Afghanistan, in Central Asia, and on in terms of the future prowess or otherwise of al-Qaeda and ISIS. So I think in a sense, we are seeing a determination on the US side to leave come what may, and Biden has probably taken the view that the basically the mood in the United States probably goes along with this. People are fed up with the long war. And you know, almost everybody in the US will know of somebody will know somebody in their wider neighborhood, their town or city district, who was either killed or maimed for life in Afghanistan. You know, the total of the two is something like twenty-five thousand. And so you spread that across the country. There is this knowledge in the United States in the sort of body politics that this has been a disastrous war. Um, what happens in Afghanistan then will dictate what the United States does, but it will not be tens of thousands of troops on the ground. I think that is extremely improbable. You've mentioned already that the Taliban have been able to take lots of territory and, and many provincial capitals in, in the north of the country, which was traditionally uh, the stronghold of, of forces uh, in opposition to, to the Taliban. And of course, the US allied with the so-called Northern Alliance to drive the Taliban from power after 9-11. Why do you think the Taliban have managed to take over so much of the north uh, this time around? And why do you think they chose to do this rather than try and consolidate control in their traditional heartlands and, and then move uh, from the south to the north, which would seem a more sort of conventional uh, way to, uh, to prosecute the war? Well, I think their own internal intelligence told them um, that they would stand much more chance of doing this than they'd previously thought. But there are other elements here. Don't forget that they did not control the cities in the south, particularly Kandahar and Lashkagar. But the two key provinces of, of Kandahar province and Helmand were essentially controlled by them already in the rural areas. And um, Helmand is crucially important for the uh, Taliban because it is basically a world center for the growing of opium, producing heroin and the rest. And they basically controlled that and got huge monetary income from that. But notice one of the things that they have done about two or three weeks ago was to take control of the key uh, crossing between Kandahar province and Balochistan in northwest in, in Western Pakistan at Spinbodak. And that taking that crossing alone is probably giving them an income of about a million dollars equivalent a week because they're basically taxing all the lorries coming through into Afghanistan. And the lorries will pay it because essentially, once they're through the Taliban, they won't face any other banditry because the Taliban made, made sure of this. So in other words, while they do not control the cities in the south, they control much of the rest. And clearly, they also decided to go for the west and the north of the country 
because that also meant taking key road routes and just as important, the actual crossings. So they control the big crossing into Iran. They control uh, what is uh, virtually a dry port through into Uzbekistan. And one has to remember that one province they took, uh, what, about three weeks ago, was a province in eastern uh, Afghanistan, which includes that long finger of land, the Wakhan Corridor, which goes right through about 250 kilometers to the northwest. To looks China. quite small, uh, quite odd. And that connects with China. That's the one common bond, uh, border with China. So the Taliban already have a geographical link with China, and significantly their political head was meeting the Chinese foreign minister in China only two weeks ago. So you can see the planets kind of encircling Kabul rather than moving out from their central power because essentially they control so much of the country. In terms of the, the opposing forces, so typically it's suggested that the Afghan government army numbers some 300,000 plus an air force and the support of the of the US, uh, at least in terms of airstrikes now, while the Taliban are said to number something around 75 uh, thousand. Uh, do those numbers sound sound right to you? And, and if they do, what accounts for the Taliban's ability to to overrun territory controlled by the government so easily? Well, in a sense, I think what we tend to forget is the Taliban never went away. Many of them went through temporarily to northwest Pakistan after 9-11. Um, you have to go back to the immediate sort of post-9-11 uh, history of Afghanistan. Yes, the Taliban appeared to have been uh, more or less completely terminated by, what, November 2001. But that really is misleading. In many cases, they just went to ground to their own homes in towns and villages across Afghanistan, particularly in the Pashtun South, with their weapons intact, their light arms. Many went through into uh, Pakistan. And there were some very bitter fights uh, with US troops. You know, the US 10th Mountain Division from New York State, that's where it's centered, um, fought some extraordinary battles in uh, Afghanistan in the winter of 2001, 2002. And that tends to be forgotten because by early 2002, everything was fixated on the presumed coming war with Iraq. The Taliban never went away. Um, they began to emerge in 2004. And remember, by 2006, the West was pouring troops back into Afghanistan, even the Brits going in by the thousand into Helmand province, and were engaged against the Taliban right through. And so they've been slowly building up their strength, controlling more and more territory, uh, for the best part of 14 or 15 years. So it is not in any sense sudden. They have certainly been joined in recent years by some thousands of uh, what you might call extreme Islamist paramilitaries from elsewhere, most likely including Chechens, people from Saudi Arabia, from Libya, uh, certainly from Pakistan, uh, and also Uyghur paramilitaries from China, which in cases is a marker for the future. So in other words, the Taliban are pretty strong because they controlled so much countryside, they've been getting revenues from taxes right the way through. So it's not a sudden thing, but your point is about the numbers. But again, if we deconstruct those a little bit, yes, on paper, the Afghan uh, armed forces, the military forces may number about 300,000. And there's a semi-armed police as well where there are very high levels of corruption. As far as the army is concerned, really, as I said earlier on, 
It's that relatively small group of the so-called special forces. Some people claim as many as 50,000, there's probably less, who are the ones that actually can offer more serious defence. And even though the, the, the Taliban themselves may only number 70, 75,000, they are very well embedded in the whole situation. Uh, and therefore, I think are in a position a lot stronger than people have realized. They've also been able to get lots of equipment, including trucks and the rest, even some artillery, almost certainly, as they've taken over Afghan outposts, where, where in so many cases, the Afghan army has just agreed, either left post-haste or else surrendered and then been allowed to leave. And what do you think accounts for the demoralization of, of the regular Afghan army? Um, there has been a major problem with corruption um, right across the country and maladministration. That has certainly not helped. Uh, it's been a long grinding war for the best part of 20 years. Many thousands of Afghan soldiers have been killed. Many more have been maimed for life. So essentially, um, they basically were in a, almost an unwinnable position. And some of us have been sort of arguing this for quite a long time. Again, you had to go back early on. Um, you can argue whether even going to war was right. I would argue very strongly against it and did so at the time. But you can then accept, well, OK, the Americans went in uh, with the British and others. They terminated the regime by the end of November. At that point, senior experienced Afghanis and senior UN personnel, I'm thinking of Lakhdar Brahimi, the point man for the UN in Afghanistan, who had earlier in his career been a foreign secretary in uh, Algeria. People like that were arguing that what Afghanistan had to have immediately was a major foreign stabilization force, not peacekeeping in the conventional sense. They needed help with policing, with logistics, with legal measures uh, right across the board. And ideally, they need an, need an input almost at once of maybe 30,000 people who would be drawn from many countries and would include many Muslims. And basically, that will then enable Afghanistan to rebuild its own society. And bluntly, it didn't happen. Um, we had the International uh, Security Assistance Force, which was established under NATO auspices pretty early on. But for two or three years, that had no more than four, 5,000 people in mostly, but not entirely soldiers, and they really provided security for Kabul and for um, Kandahar and one or two other places and some pretty big bases. So essentially, the, the, it was a vacuum, a huge vacuum, and pretty quickly the Taliban recognized this and came back in the rural areas. So I'm afraid the mistake goes right back almost to the start, but I would argue a double mistake, uh, not that it was a mistake to go to war in the first place. There were other options which should have been taken. You've already mentioned uh, Doha, where, where those uh, negotiations are, are ongoing. And, and Doha is also the location of uh, US military base uh, from which airstrikes have been launched against the Taliban in, in, in recent days. Do, do you think the US will, will seek to prevent the fall of, of Kabul and, and Kandahar by very much ramping up uh, airstrikes, even if, if from a distance? Uh, I very much doubt it. Uh, not for Kandahar, certainly. Um, possibly uh, Kabul... Um, not to basically prevent its fall, but to delay its fall in the hope of getting some sort of compromise. Um, but I don't think the United States is in the business of doing this on a large scale. What it is in the business of doing is making sure that whatever happens in Afghanistan 
and I think, frankly, presuming that there's almost complete Taliban takeover, uh, what they're then planning is to use their own military capabilities uh, to ensure that the likes of ISIS and al-Qaeda do not reform on a scale in Afghanistan where they can offer any sort of threat to the United States. You see, both of those loose movements are increasing their power in other parts of the world, uh, particularly in the Sahel region of the Sahara, right through from what Mauritania through Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Nigeria through to Chad, and to some extent also the developments on the Swahili coast in Somalia, Mozambique, and back into the DRC. You see that groups loosely linked to the likes of ISIS and Al-Qaeda are developing and developing rapidly. The French and the Americans are basically countering this with drones and the rest. And But the, none of these groups be, really form a kind of locus where you would have sufficient independence of operation to be able to operate worldwide attacks like 9-11. But that is not true of Afghanistan and the Americans will work very hard to prevent that. And what they will do almost certainly is to exercise what you know we tend now to call remote warfare, um, which of course is a wider development of the last 15 years. You do not, as a Western country, now put tens of thousands of boots on the ground anywhere. Um, that lesson has been learnt, but it's taken many years to learn it, just as it took the British, you know, basically Suez as well as Indian independence to recognise the colonial era was, was over, and it took the French even longer with Algeria. But basically, remote warfare is the nature of the beast now, and that includes the use of long-range aircraft with, with extraordinary standoff capabilities with bombs and missiles. It includes arms, armed drones with, you know, a 40-hour endurance time. It includes special forces. It includes privatized military and, indeed, supporting local militias. And it, but several of those components will be what the United States will do and is already doing. I mean, we've seen in the last week or so more waves of B-52 bombers being used to bomb Taliban positions. And they've also brought back in the AC-130U gunship, which, you know, uh, at the time of the Vietnam War, they started developing a version of this plane, which basically flew around a target at altitude in circles and then fired from the side of the plane a howitzer, an extraordinary machine gun and other things, which could devastate an area completely. That was known by this terrible name of Puff the Magic Dragon, and it had extraordinary casualties. Basically, they got a much more advanced version, which they call Smokey. And that was in Operation Afghanistan just a few days ago. Uh, it was used widely in the Iraq war with, on occasions, devastating effect. There was one occasion when a slightly earlier version was used to basically, if I can use the crude term, take out six blocks of uh, the city of Fallujah in reprisal. It was a direct reprisal raid for an attack on American Marine Battalion. And so what the United States would choose to do is maintain enough capability in terms of reconnaissance, maybe some special forces on the ground to make sure that if any kind of ISIS or Al-Qaeda group was establishing itself to the extent that it was an international threat, then the war would go on, but not in any way uh, the form that it has taken now. And I'm afraid, no doubt, with very heavy civilian casualties in the process, which in turn will probably make the lives of ISIS and Al-Qaeda even more determined uh, to strike overseas. So unless we're very lucky, I think that in the next five years, we're going to be back in the era that we had in, what, 
2002, 2006, with all the attacks around the world, and more recently with uh, the attacks in London and elsewhere. It's a bleak future, but I think that is what we're looking at present. I wish one could be more positive, but I think it's very difficult. On the 8th of July, Joe Biden was asked if he saw any parallels between the, the uh, situation in, in Afghanistan uh, and the US withdrawal from South Vietnam and the, and the evacuation of the US embassy uh, from uh, what was then Saigon in 1975. Uh, and he gave a, a, a pretty unequivocal response uh, saying that uh, the Taliban is not the North Vietnamese army. They're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. Uh, there's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy. Do you think that latter claim... Uh, is, is going to bear up? <laughs> it is possible it will, because what has happened, one has to remember that the, the everything will focus on Kabul. The Americans apparently have something like 3,000 personnel there. That is a mixture of the diplomats, um, aid officials, of who there are quite a lot still, uh, the dependents are, are being got out quickly, um, private uh, military companies, contractors and the rest. Um, but Kabul, uh, I mean, there were two routes to Kabul, essentially. One was Bagram, this very big base, uh, quite a few kilometers to the north. Um, and that now has been already handed over to the Afghans. The Americans got out almost overnight in the dark, so to speak. Mm. But also, Without telling the Afghans, I believe. Without the, te- yeah, the, I mean, what you had was sort of, you had this extraordinary picture of rows of SUVs and very posh vehicles some of them even with the key still in the lock. Um, quite extraordinary. And now the Taliban, of course, have used that repeatedly. Uh, well, they will do when they take over background. They've been doing it elsewhere already. But the main international airport in Kabul um, is in the suburbs, pretty close to the city in the northeast. And that, by interestingly, by agreement, the Turks have armed troops there to safeguard that airport. So I, my guess is that if it really does come to the rapid need to withdraw from Kabul, and that's not impossible, uh, then you may well see it done through the airport. But of course, the problem here, I mean, again, this is very awful stuff to talk about, but what could happen is so many Afghans will be desperate to get out at the last minute. You might still see uh, the helicopters going out. Um, Where they go to is going to be pretty tricky because they don't usually have the range necessarily to get out of Afghanistan on a sort of a round trip, but we will see. So it is possible. I think Biden has to speak like this, and no doubt there are very extensive um, preparations underway now for this kind of eventuality, specifically to make it not look like a rout. So in your uh, in your recent article in Open Democracy, um, you argue that India has the most to lose from a Taliban uh, victory. Um, can you explain what India's role has been in, in Afghanistan in recent years and, and what a Taliban victory would mean for India's relations, not just with whatever successor regime there will be in Kabul, but also uh, Pakistan and, and China? Yes, um, India regards Afghanistan as important because essentially... If Afghanistan has an internationalist government and one that is sympathetic to India, then that undermines Pakistan. And that is, as far as the Indian military concern is, that's very good news. The more Pakistan uh, has problems in Afghanistan, the less it has the person power to actually face up to India uh, in Kashmir and elsewhere. So for India, Afghanistan is a pretty important country. It is, of course, through... uh, links through to Central Asia, although obviously that requires going through Pakistan. 
Um, but India has been doing a lot. It's, it's put a lot of aid money into the um, uh, judicial system in Afghanistan. It's provided a lot of aid. And I mean, it has had pretty senior uh, Afghan people, particularly on the intelligence side, spending time in New Delhi and elsewhere. And so it would like to maintain Afghanistan not under the Taliban. Um, if it was under the Taliban, now, essentially, civilian Pakistani politicians would say this is bad news because they want a peaceful country. Uh, the military bluntly takes a very different view. Many senior people in particular, the Pakistani military, see it as good news. They have such good links with the Taliban through the Inter-Services inter Intelligence Agency that they see uh, an Afghanistan in which they have influence as very useful as far as India is concerned. They also see that if Afghanistan is under the Taliban, there's a pretty strong possibility that China will come in as well uh, and see a huge opportunity to improve its route to the West, so to speak. So as far as the Pakistanis are concerned and the Chinese, um, Taliban they can live with, possibly even more. For India, obviously, with its great concern about the Chinese influence across Central and even West Asia, this is a worry. So I think that's at the root of it. But you will get a very different answer um, from a senior Pakistani politician than you would get, say, from a senior Pakistani officer who's prepared to talk off the record. You see, the Pakistan army in particular is hugely worried about the Hindutva uh, idea, you know, the idea of a greater India covering the whole of South Asia. Um, and of course, Hindutva may not go that far under Modi, but it goes a lot further than under the Congress party. So you get a degree of, I would almost use the term paranoia among many senior Pakistani military uh, about India as the big threat. And for them, anything which increases their influence in uh, Afghanistan and the difficulties to India is frankly good news. I say Pakistani politicians will not normally say that, maybe privately they don't even think it. The Taliban is sometimes described in the West almost as if it's it's a creature of of the ISI. How much truth do you do you think there, there ever was to that claim, and 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 how much leverage does Pakistan have over the Taliban today? I think the more powerful the Taliban get, the less they will feel the need to have leverage with Pakistan. Um, there certainly has been a lot of leverage, but one has to remember that you know. The Taliban origins come from many sources and includes the more religiously motivated to the Mujahideen back in the 1980s against the Soviet Union. Um, so the, the idea that it was something completely new, I think, is a myth. Yes, um, the way in which you had uh, the sort of religious element coming in, I mean, Taliban, roughly speaking, means student. Um, the, the way in which that military uh, religious element came in in the 1990s, the early 1990s, is very significant. Much of it due uh, to the education of Pakistanis, particularly Pashtun and Afghans in the madrasas funded by the, Saudi, the Saudis in the 1980s and early 1990s. So essentially, it was different to an extent, but not massively. One also has to remember that during the 1990s, when the Taliban were trying to defeat the warlords, which they'd largely but never fully did by 1996, they were getting more and more aid from outside. This is when Osama bin Laden uh, and, and the others were actually coming in. And so they were already, to an extent, internationalizing. I can't remember the authors, but there's a very good book called The Arabs in Afghanistan, which charts this involvement of outsiders 
So to that extent, yes, there was a close relationship with the ISI, but that was not, to use a cruise phrase, the only iron that the Taliban had in the fire even 10, even 20 years ago. You've already touched on this a little bit, but in terms of the Taliban's relations with China and the, the Wakhan Corridor, the, the narrow sliver of land that, that you described that connects Afghanistan with, with, with China, you suggest in, in your article in Open Democracy that the arrangement the two sides might come to might be pretty disastrous for human rights on, on both sides of, of the border. Can you explain the, what, what you were getting at there? Yeah, just a little bit of history to this. This, in, this corridor actually came from the mutual rivalry between the British Empire and the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Empire, in the 1880s. And in 1893, uh, when the borders are more or less being finalized, so to speak, the British and the Russians agreed to have this corridor uh, between basically British India and the Russian Empire, which would separate the two uh, by basically it was between sort of 25 and 50 kilometers wide and 250 kilometers um, long, uh, west to east. And of course, it bordered with China in the east. So there was no direct connection. That is modern day Pakistan and Tajikistan. And that has held ever since. Um, it's not well populated, 12 or 15,000 people in the whole territory of different ethnicities and cultures. Uh, there is no um, manageable connection across the pass. It's a very high pass, still used by herders and others. Uh, China basically has it closed. It has military patrols on a road their side. But there's long been the idea that a proper route would be provided over that. The, the Chinese capability for high-level roads is astonishing. They could put a tunnel through. So they could basically have this connection. Now, what would it mean for the two groups? Let's say we have a Chinese um, government working with a Taliban government. Well, as far as the Chinese are concerned, the key thing here would be that they would be able to leverage the Taliban government of Afghanistan to hold in check any kind of involvement with the oppositionists to the Uyghur rule in Xinjiang province. Um, that is a real why for the Chinese, because they are fairly paranoid about the capabilities of Uyghurs, even though they exert such firm human rights control of, of the province. But essentially, as far as the Chinese are concerned, the several thousand Uyghur, ethnic Uyghurs who've been working with the Taliban in Afghanistan are a real danger. And so if, Afghan if China goes into a, a sort of a real relationship with, um, with Afghanistan, then they could avoid that they would also be able to produce a new land route uh, through to, uh, say, Gwandar, the, the port which they've helped build in Western Pakistan, and through, obviously, links through to Iran, to Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and even possibly in the future, Turkmenistan as well. So in other words, would open up what you might almost call a little bit of the Silk Road. And that particular pass at the top of the Wakhan Corridor was even used in Roman times. Uh, it's, even though it's only passable in the summer months, it was a regular route between China uh, and Europe 1,500, 2,000 years ago. So it's not something new. Chinese could also put a lot of money into developing the massive mineral resources in Afghanistan, including rare earths, uh, which, of course, are very important. As far as the Taliban are concerned, they could get a huge boost in the economic development of the country, maintaining all the rigidity of their a Qutib type Islamist rule, 
but benefiting from growth and therefore probably more able to survive. Um, and of course, this is another area where the Indians would be really very worried. Um, so the net effect, the way I made that point in the Open Democracy co column is that if this came to pass and it is not beyond the bounds of possibility by a long shot now, then China would help solve any future problem in Xinjiang and basically which would damage human rights even more in that province, whereas the Taliban would be firmly in control with their own attitude to human rights, particularly in relation to women and children. So to that extent, I think it would be, it would be grim. Do you think that the, the, the possibility of, of some kind of informal alliance with, with China is perhaps having the effect of making the, the threat from the US that Afghanistan will again become a kind of a, a pariah state just seem somewhat empty and, 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 and not, not that forceful to the, to the Taliban because they can look elsewhere in a sort of increasingly multipolar world? Yes, I think that is true. And this is why the talks which, I mean, as we recall, this apparently are going on in Doha, which I believe do include uh, Russian and Chinese personnel who've been brought in, um, invited and accepted invitation from the Americans. It is just possible um, that China might decide for its own purposes that it would be good to get some sort of settlement because it would know for sure that it could go ahead and develop along the lines we've already been discussing. Uh, so to that extent, there may still be a glimmer of hope. And, you know, uh, that could change within 24 hours of the time we're recording this. Things are moving so fast. But yes, the Taliban, basically what Biden is trying to do, and I think it was either Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal had an interesting piece on this, uh, I think it was yesterday, was basically to put diplomatic pressure on the Taliban now to say, yes, you become a prior state. I'm really not too sure that the Taliban really take that seriously simply because of the fact you know, to have your head of the political section uh, engaging with a high-level team for several days with the Chinese foreign minister in China at the Chinese invitation only two weeks ago does rather suggest that, you know, they're not without, if not friends, they're without interested observers. So you wrote that there are indications that some Western governments, including the US, uh, see increased Chinese involvement in Afghanistan as a, as a welcome uh, stabilizing development. And, and obviously, given all the talk about containing China and a, and a new Cold War, uh, that might seem a, a bit surprising. Is it that the view from uh, Washington that there are certain parts of the world where it may actually be, be beneficial for, for China to be involved, and Afghanistan happens to be one of them, in contrast to, to other parts of the world where they very much want to keep the Chinese out? Yes, uh, but I think two um, caveats there. One, the Open Democracy piece was written, I think, a fortnight ago, and things have changed quite a lot since then. I think probably um, the, the, the view in the United States has changed simply by the rate of the Taliban advance. Uh, so to that extent, you know, they may be not quite ke as keen on that as they were. On the other hand, that might also, the second point, that might also be the reason why the Americans are trying this effort um, to persuade all the countries surrounding Afghanistan and then the big powers uh, to come together to try and put this pressure on the Taliban, because they may feel that some sort of compromise, which will end up with a lot of Chinese influence in Afghanistan, may be preferable to basically an independent and determinedly minded Taliban Afghanistan. Um, but as I say, things are changing so quickly that even if, you know, if you're frankly in this subject, you know, what you write can be out of date pretty quickly. That was certainly accurate at the time. I think the mood may well have changed in Washington. Indeed, the recent indications are that it has. 
if we think about the pretty long now uh, history of, of Western military involvement in in Afghanistan following following nine eleven, how do you think the Western intervention, well, predominantly U.S. intervention, will be will be judged? Well, um, well, in a sense, we probably need an hour to even go through that because it brings in the wider issues. So let me just say quickly, one has to remember that in the past twenty years there have been four major failed wars, of which Afghanistan is only one. You had the Iraq War, which ended uh, ended up with a near um, failing, certainly failing and insecure state by 2008, 2010. Um, you had then Libya in 2011, which we're not even touching on. That was a that has been a disaster. Um, so you've had Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya, and then when ISIS came on the scene in in uh, uh, Iraq and Syria, you had that largely unreported but intense air war fought between what uh, mid-2014 and 2018 although there are still American and British attacks going on in Syria and in uh, Iraq against ISIS-linked units and you know people thought well ISIS is gone it no longer has its caliphate there but in reality as we were talking earlier on it is spreading elsewhere and the UN reckons there are still 10,000 active paramilitaries available in Iraq and Syria. So basically, you had four failed wars. Um, and I think if, I, if one is right in the long term, that will really be the, the message left of which of those four, Afghanistan has been the longest and possibly the worst, although in terms of loss of life uh, uh, and, uh, and the rest, Iraq has been an utter disaster. But you've got to see this in the wider context. I mean, when and we maybe talk about this another time, and it's what the sort of the updated version of uh, of the losing control book tries to do, and that is we're now clearly moving into a world in which, to be very blunt about it, our traditional idea of going to war is obsolete. Um, we see it clearly with the coronavirus, and we're nowhere near out of the woods. And we know that although the official figure is 4 million people died so far, even the WHO admits it's probably twice that, nearer 10 million. And we're seeing that, you know, you can't nuke a virus. Aircraft carriers aren't much good and all the rest. It's a different kind of security threat. And that pales into insignificance if we don't get on top, in, on top of climate change and climate breakdown. Because in a sense, COVID is already going to make the widening wealth poverty differentials deeper that's happening almost by the month of present you know the way in which the world's richest people the billionaires have increased their wealth by 20 percent during the covid pandemic gives you some idea of just how so terribly wrong the whole neoliberal system is going and it can't handle climate change as well so in a way i think this needs to be such a fundamental rethinking of attitudes to security that that is what we're facing now and you know it really is it's a massive global change. And I've, I've only been able to scratch the surface in this in losing control. But personally, I think it's vitally important. But in that context, I think essentially it's three paradigms under threat, isn't it? One, obviously, is the, um, the neoliberal economic order and its transformation into more complex forms. Second is the failure to come to terms with environmental limitations so far. And thirdly is the basically the security paradigm, which is about maintaining control. You keep the lid on things rather than going underneath to what's really going on. Um, that, I think, is what we're facing. And essentially, you could say in a nutshell, Afghanistan and the other wars are examples 
of the way one of those three paradigms in particular is failing and failing dismally. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.